I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey everyone, Brett McKay here, and welcome back to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So today's podcast, I'm talking to Juliana Schroeder. She is a PhD candidate at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, where she's specializing in social cognition, decision, and judgment. And she's a research assistant for a guy named Nicholas Epley, who wrote a book called MindWise, which is a really fascinating book, and it's all about how our brains are evolved to read the minds of others. And we'll get into that, what that means, reading the minds of others. But in a nutshell, it means something we do every day. Whenever someone says something that might be sort of obtuse, you might, it's not very explicit, we, our brains try to figure out what that person really means, either through looking at body language, looking at you know, where they look, the context, a whole bunch of things to figure out what the other person is thinking. And the research suggests that our brains are evolved for this sort of mind reading. And in the research for this book, Juliana and Nicholas uncovered a lot of cool insights about social cognition and how our brain works whenever we try to read the minds of others. And we're going to talk about that today. I think there's a lot of great practical takeaways you can take away from this research. So, for example, we're going to to talk about how whenever you gain status in some way, either through position or through money, there's a tendency to dehumanize others where you think they're like not really a person. So you kind of treat them not that great. Um, and we're going to talk about what you can do to avoid that. We're going to talk about how men and women mind read differently and how they also do it very similarly. We're also going to talk about the benefits that we get from engaging with the minds of others through small talk. So it, it, there's just a really a lot of cool stuff. I think you're really going to enjoy this podcast. I'll give you a heads up. Skype was kind of acting funky this day when we did the podcast. So there's some parts that are pretty choppy. I apologize that in advance. I'm trying to work out a, a better solution to the podcast interview setup. So hopefully we'll, that won't be a problem anymore. All right. So let's do this. Mindwise with Juliana Schroeder. All right. Juliana Schroeder, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you are a PhD candidate at the University of Chicago School of Business in Behavioral Science, correct? That's right. Um, I'm actually doing a joint degree program in Behavioral Science and Social Psychology. Okay, and you've been working under Nicholas Epley. That's right. He's my primary advisor. Okay. Well, so he wrote this book. It's really interesting called MindWise. And you, from what Mm -hmm. he told me, you've helped him with this. You did a lot of the research, a lot of the the grunt work on this. And Uh, well, I helped a little bit, but you know, with all his (laughs) writing and he's sort of absolutely the brains behind a lot of the books. Well, it gives me more credit than I do, probably. <laughs> well, that's it's very kind. I mean, I'm sure you you did a lot more than you think you did. And we'll we'll talk about that actually, because that's kind of yeah, actually, that's a good segue into some of the research. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, mindwise, he makes the case in the book that we're that we're as human beings we're evolved to be mind readers, and that it's our sixth sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does he mean mm-hmm. by that? How are we mind readers? Um. So. So what he means by that is that, you know, humans are social animals. And so every single day um, we're interacting with other people. There's almost nothing that we do that doesn't involve at least the presence of other people, if not physically interacting with them. Any sort of big goal that, that we want to be able to fulfill is going to involve having others 
um, in some way. And so in that sense, we're constantly interacting with other people and we need to coordinate with them. So um, some actual researchers have suggested that um, one of the reasons that we develop language is in order to coordinate socially um, to sort of express what's on our minds. So the, the reason why Nick calls it our sixth sense is because sort of every single day we have to think about what is going on in other people's minds. We have to be able to um, coordinate with them. We have to be able to try to predict that and intuit that. And even though we have actually no direct access into their mind. So language might be one of the closest um, way, sort of the most direct ways, in fact, that we can tell what's going on in someone's mind because they, they explicitly, verbally tell us. Um, then you can also look at the nonverbal cues as well, but those uh, are often not quite as informative. Um, and so we have to sort of try to read the minds of others um, by using sort of a number of different strategies. Okay, is this the same as theory of mind? Um, so theory of mind is uh, essentially an umbrella term that describes sort of the, the theories essentially that we have about other people's minds. And so um, being able to read a mind is sort of a, a more specific instantiation of that. So being able to sort of, I might, for example, I might have a theory that you um, are sort of as competent and as feeling as I am in lots of different ways, but I might not be able to specifically intuit exactly what it is that you're thinking in the moment that we're having this conversation. Okay. So I think they're sort of very similar terms, but my reading is a little bit more specific in the way that Nick is referring to it. Okay. So examples of mind reading are, would be like um, just figuring out like what people think about you, right? When you're having a conversation, like, am I coming off well sure. to this person? Is that an example of mind reading? Sure. Exactly. So, I mean, right now we're sort of in this difficult situation where we're having a, a phone conversation. I can't, or see your face, but I can hear the words that, you know, you're speaking, and I'm trying to sort of anticipate your questions as I come. Of course, I've had some extra help on this, because you sent me some of the questions, <laughs> um, but also trying to guess sort of what it is that you're, what it is that you are thinking as it is as I'm talking. So okay. that's, a, that's a somewhat difficult task, but I'm doing it sort of intuitively and innately online. I'm thinking of what you're thinking as, as I speak, and yeah. it's, it's, it's difficult if you break it down. But in fact, you know, this is something that we're used to doing all the time and we have to do all the time every time that we communicate with someone. Interesting. So like also like when you, like for example, when I talk to my wife and then I say something and then I can tell she, I mean, I'm trying to figure out, did she like respond well to what I said? Like you're trying to read that body language. Is that like, mm -hmm. that's mind reading again right there? Uh, yeah, Nick actually has this great story where he gave a gift to his wife and she started crying and he, she thought that she was very, very upset about the gift, but in fact she was crying because she was so happy because she loved it so much. Okay. And so sometimes when you focus in on like a specific nonverbal cue, it can be a little bit misleading. And um, in particular, people really seem to have the sense that they can read other people's cues pretty accurately and they tend to sort of overestimate the extent to which they're actually able to do that. So I think that, you know, I'll be able to tell what you're feeling and what you're thinking just based on sort of reading your face. But in fact, that's actually very, very difficult to do. Okay. And people tend to be pretty bad at it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, because yeah, while sure. we're evolved for it and like we do it, we, we mind read all the time without really thinking about it. And we're actually pretty good at it. Um, we do make a lot of mistakes and um, mm -hmm. one of the ways that we fail to successfully read the mind of others is when we de dehumanize them. And I guess this is an area that you specialize in and you've been doing a lot of research on. Is that correct? Sure. So dehumanization is sort of an, uh, one of the ex more extreme consequences of not being able to read someone's mind. And so as opposed to simply sort of mispredicting the valence, so maybe you sound happy. In, in the last thing that you said. And so I, I think you're really extremely happy, but in fact, you aren't so happy. So I might just make up a, a misprediction like that. Dehumanization is more like I completely sort of overlook um, a fundamental aspect of your mind, either it's the ability to think or the ability that you have to feel. Um, and so this kind of happens in one of two ways. Um, one is like I mentioned, sort of just overlooking it. So lots of factors sort of lead us to sort of just fail to see what's going on in other people's minds. Um, even just egocentricism, like being inside my own head, can lead me to overlook what's going on in sort of other people's heads. 
Um, and that kind of dehumanization is um, something that we've recently termed dehumanization by omission. So we're just sort of overlooking um, what's going on in someone else's mind for a number of possible reasons which we can talk about. And then there's a second kind, which is um, what people tend to think of when we use the term dehumanization, and we call this dehumanization by commission, which is more of the overt, proactive, um, in the cases of groups that are enemies, that have historical conflict, um, the dehumanization, which is really antagonistic. So, like, I have some research on um, Palestinians and Israelis um, and sort of how they perceive each other and sort of ways to overcome that. And so that's the dehumanization by commission, the really aggressive dehumanization. So there's these sort of two pathways, and people conflate them a lot, and they lead to some of the same outcomes, interestingly enough. So you might think that sort of being um, aggressive and antagonistic towards someone would lead to really different outcomes than just merely being apathetic and overlooking aspects of their minds. But in fact, some of the outcomes are kind of similar, which is interesting. Interesting. So, I mean, basically what dehumanization does is that you look at the person, you don't, you think they're mindless, like they don't have a mind, right? So it's like not worth even trying to read. Yeah, essentially. um, Yeah, you basically either think they sort of don't have much competence or you don't sort of understand or see their agency or the other side of it is um, not being able to see that they they have the ability to feel. So sort of assuming that they're emotionless um, and unfeeling. Okay. Gotcha. So, uh, so I guess an example of, I mean, would this be an example of the uh, dehumanization by omission? There's been some research lately that said that uh, rich people or people in positions of authority or power are less empathetic. Um, then, uh, absolutely. Then like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, how does, how does that, why is it? So I guess, is it just cause like you think, like, not when, I, when I mean like positions of power, it's like even doctors, right. Might look at their mm-hmm. patients as a mindless person. Like they dehumanize them in a way. I don't think they do it purposely, but they yeah. do. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, there's a couple of different lines of research that you're referring to. So one of them um, is the idea that when people have resources, and you can think of that as power or money um, or status, being high status, that sort of um, frees them from be- from having to worry about others as much or having to think about others as much. And so it causes them to become more self-centered and more narcissistic. So there's actually like fantastic research that shows that just making people feel like they have more power causes them to like look in the mirror more at themselves when they have the opportunity to do so. (laughs) And also it causes them to um, sort of show less compassion for others. So, um, so one study that I really like, they looked at, um, it is a field study where basically the researchers um, just stood at pedestrian crosswalks and they had some, um, a Confederate standing at the crosswalk trying to cross the street. And they basically looked at the cars that were willing to stop for the person and let them go and the cars that would not stop and cut the person off. And the cars that cut the person off tended to be uh, cars that more rich people would buy. So the more expensive cars are the ones that were more likely to cut people off. And so you can sort of imagine all sorts of reasons why this might be the case, but essentially um, what a lot of uh, research has suggested is that people... Uh, there's something called the social distance theory. People who have more resources can be more distant from others because they're more independent. They don't need others as much. And so, therefore, they just simply don't have sort of the motivation to think about them. And power operates in much the same way, where if you're in a high power position, you may um, use other people, like as an employee, you might use employees in order to fulfill certain work goals. So you might not be sort of focused on them as humans or as people. You don't you you don't have to do so because you're in high power, and so you know you're not sort of fundamentally connected that to them in such a way that you would need to um, be paying attention to them. So I mean, and this happens with doctors too, because like sometimes people go to the doctor, and you're like, I feel like my doctor doesn't listen to me. Yeah, so we think there's actually something a little bit different going on with physicians, and um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. So physicians are high status and and often high power, um, and so there could be some the idea that they have resources. But there's um, other like specific aspects that uh, pertain to physicians, which is that um, a patient to them, so there's a couple things. One is that a patient is sort of 
represents a health problem that needs to be fixed. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, um, patients often become sort of a, a goal that needs to be sort of satisfied. And so they become, they become what their health problem is and they're construed as such. So you might often hear like a physician who talks about a patient, not in terms of their name, like this is my patient, Juliana, but in terms of her problem, like she has thyroid cancer. And so I'm just thinking about how to solve the cancer. Mm-hmm. And another thing, particularly with physicians, is that um, there's been some research that suggests that if they get too involved with their patients and if they really feel their patients, um, all their emotions and their pain and really empathize with them, that can actually lead to burnout. Um, which can actually be negative for both parties in the interaction. Um, so, in fact, uh, it's been shown that through medical school, sort of when um, medical students start school, they do show more compassion, but they actually learn to sort of reduce that over time. And that can actually be adaptive for them because it leads to less burnout. So the people who are best able to sort of detach from their patients are often the ones who don't burn out as quickly. I have a friend uh, from high school. He he was, mm-hmm. he's a medical student, or I guess he's done now. But he um, when he went into it, he had like he was very like he did it for like all the right reasons, right? Very idealistic. And then I remember talking uh-huh. to him. I was in New York City one for a business trip, and uh, he was doing his residency at Jamaica Queens, which is like just this, this all this stuff. There's a lot of just a lot of churn going on there in the ER, and he'd become uh-huh. really jaded in a lot of ways. It was really surprising because I he just. Uh, he kind of became detached um, a little bit. And I think, but he's done well. I mean, he survived. And I think he, he kind of talked about this. Like, if I don't, like, you just get burnt out um, when you try to just be empathetic all the time with these these patients. Um, so that's, right. that's really right. interesting. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine that there's some sort of you know, self-protection that needs to happen in order for you to sort of survive the day-to-day duties of seeing people die and witnessing that wow. and not getting overly involved in that. But at the same time, you know, patients clearly state that they want their physicians to show them empathy, that they really look for those patient-focused emotions in their physicians. Um, and so as a physician, you kind of have to balance between those two. Okay. So here's a question. I mean, how do you avoid that um, dehumanization as you gain in status, whether, you know, you make, you become more fluent than your friends or those around you, or you gain power in some way. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you avoid that dehumanization where you don't think about others and treat others like they don't have a mind? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so because this tends to fall into the category of what we call the dehumanization by omission, where it's not that people are, you know, consciously trying to, you know, dehumanize others. It's more just that they are no longer motivated and no longer need to really care a lot about other people's mental states. Um, If you can motivate them, um, certainly they are able to sort of notice everyone's mental state. So in one study, for example, um, they made people into the role of this one experiment. They made people um, put participants into the role of a manager or an employee and um, they had the managers um, focusing on uh, product-oriented goals. So they gave the manager all, all these goals to produce certain products, a line of workers who were in a, you know, a factory setup. And, um, and in that case, the managers couldn't, afterwards, they couldn't remember the workers' names. They um, didn't know much about sort of the workers' mental states at all. They didn't, they didn't notice the workers that much. They were just really concerned about producing the products. And then in the second condition, they had the exact same setup, but they told the managers um, that they needed to be people-oriented instead of product-oriented. They said, you're the manager. Your job is to watch out for the workers, um, make sure that they are um, motivated and enjoying their jobs, and you want to really focus on, like, developing the people relationships in the firm. And so in that case, the managers were, like, highly motivated to focus on the workers, and then they really noticed everything going on with the workers, and they could remember their names afterwards just fine. And so it's just a matter of sort of motivating them differently. Um, And so, I mean, one thing, you know, as you, for example, if you were to gain status or power, is simply to just consciously try to remember, um, try to motivate yourself to think about others, to continually think about them. And you can even, like, change aspects of your environment to try to um, particularly provoke that. So you might try to go to lunch 
you know, every day with a person in your environment or some, a worker, if you're in a firm, for example. And then that will, you know, force you to actually focus on them for some set amount of time in a context that's outside of a work context. And it'll make you think about sort of their mind more broadly as opposed to what they can do for you. Um, so you can try to set up those kind of prompts within your sort of environment situation to remind yourself to sort of focus on others. Interesting. So you have to just be more intentional and self-aware, I guess, about your staff. Because I, I think that's a problem exactly. I think a lot of exactly. Americans might have is that we like to pretend that we don't have differences in status. You know, we like to, you know, think mm -hmm. we're all very democratic. So I think some people who become affluent, they're like, oh, I'm just like everyone else. But they, they're not, you know, and so they, and I think they don't. They're sort not, of deceiving themselves. Yeah. So yeah. It, it just, you have to be kind of self-aware. And I guess we're going to talk about that in, in, in later on in the, the podcast, because um, while we're, you know, we're, we're not very good sometimes at reading the minds of others, we're also not very good at reading our own minds sometimes, which is really surprising. Mm -hmm. Um, but let's get back to this dehumanization, de yeah. dehumanization. Cause I think it's, um, really there's an interesting article, I guess it was in the New York times about talking to strangers. Um, uh -huh. and I guess this is, it's sort of dehumanization by omission, sort of a mild form of it. But you know, the, the research that, um, Nick talked about in this article was, you know, we get into subways or into train cars and like, we're just crammed, like we're touching people, but we like act like they're mm -hmm. not there. Um, mm -hmm. and we just pretend like they're these sort of bodies and we don't even, they don't have minds. We don't talk to them the entire time, even though we're so physically and intimately close to them or physically. Why do we do that? I mean, why is it that we can like be touching a stranger, but like we just won't even talk to them or mm -hmm. look them in the eye? Yeah. Um, this is, uh, great research, but Nick and I, we just published a paper on it. Um, and essentially what we find is there um, that you know when people are strangers in these environments like public transportation we would look at trains buses even cabs with a cab driver and also even in, in situations like waiting rooms and grocery stores you know you're surrounded by strangers and you don't think of them as being social agents um you don't think of them as being someone that you could have a conversation with it's more just this is person that's sort of an obstacle in the case of public transportation, they're sort of part of the seat. It just happens to be someone in the seat. It's not really, you think of them more as objects and as actual people. And, um, part of the reason why, um, part of the reason why this occurs is because of, um, social norms that are in place. So especially in trains, um, there are now sort of silent cars where you're not even allowed to have conversations. And so no one talks. And this is the norm that people tend not to have conversations in trains and subway stuff and what that actually ends up causing is um what we call pluralistic ignorance um in which essentially um i perceive i notice that other people are not talking um i'm very aware of that and i i, I make an assumption about what they want based on their behavior and so if i i see all these people who aren't talking i assume that means they don't want to talk which seems like a pretty reasonable assumption, right? So they're not talking, that must mean they don't want to be bothered, they don't want to talk. Um, but when we actually ask people what they want, um, they say that they're actually, you know, they're bored on a one-hour-long commute into the city in the mornings, and sometimes they do want to talk. Um, so they might say, yeah, I'd be relatively interested in having a conversation with someone. If we ask them on a scale of one to seven, they might be like at a four. And then we ask them, well, what do you think other people would want? Would other people want that as well? And in fact, they think other people want it less. So other people on a scale from one to seven wouldn't be more like a two or three. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, every this is, this happens for everyone though, because everyone's at sort of a four, and they always underestimate um, what the others are at. And that's because of plural thinking. They assume that because other people aren't talking, they don't want to talk. And the reason why no one's talking in the first place is because of the norm. So mm -hmm. it becomes it basically becomes this is a really wicked environment, which is that. Nobody's talking, then that, that's a norm. Um, everyone continues not talking. And yet everyone sort of wants to talk a little bit, but no one ever learns that that's what other people want because no one starts talking. So it's just it's a continual <laughs> the negative cycle. It's a wicked environment. You never learn that other people might want to talk. The only way to learn would be, of course, to break the norm and have a conversation. And that's not something people would typically do. Um, some people do this, and we force people to do this in a series of experiments. 
Um, and they actually found out um, that it was rel- it was pleasant um, to have a conversation even with a stranger. And this was not something people would have predicted. So people predict it would be terrible <laughs> to talk with a stranger um, in any of these domains that we've looked at, um, except with the one exception being cab drivers. People have a mixed, I can talk about that more in detail, but people have mixed predictions of what that experience will be like. And partially that's because some people know what it'll be like because they do talk to their cab drivers. <laughs> but in most of these cases, when people don't have experience with talking, they think it'll be a bad experience. Yeah, which we, makes sense because they don't do it. Exactly. They think it'll be awkward. And The person will say no. Sort of, right, right. So it's interesting um, what it is specifically that's stopping them. And people sort of seem to, they're idiosyncratic worries about different things. So some people seem worried about starting a conversation. Like you mentioned, like they worry that they'll be socially rejected. Um, and in fact, uh, in all of our experiments, we've run so many of these, dozens of these experiments, um, either, you know, there are some cases in which someone's like wearing headphones or something and they don't respond right away. But in all the cases that we asked someone to talk and they reported back to us, they always said the other person responded. And you can imagine that, you know, in your mind, you're thinking, oh, what if the other person says no and you're worried about rejection? But if you were actually in that situation, you just said hi to someone, how hard would it be not to say hi back? Yeah. That's actually, I mean, the, once you say hi, then the other person pretty much has to respond back to you. Um, and that's not something you, you think of immediately. But in fact, you know, when you're in that situation, you're sitting next to someone on a bus, you say hi. The other person is going to respond. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a social norm. That's what you do. Exactly. And so, in fact, you know, in that sense, the social norms are working in the direction of your favor. Okay. And then another sort of little idiosyncratic um, concern people have is how to get out of the conversation. So <laughs> we think of these as barriers to entrance and barriers to exit. So some people are like, how, what if it's a bad conversation? I can't end it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, you're stuck on it. And particularly, we haven't run this airplanes yet, but people really have this intuition with airplanes. Like, what if I'm on a 12-hour flight <laughs> and I can't end the conversation? <laughs> um but in fact, you know, I think that also is easier than people expect. So, you know, you, you pull a magazine out and start reading or you put yeah. your headphones and there's like these clear signals and then the conversation just sort of ends at that point. So I don't think it needs to be. I think people really build this up in their minds more so than it would exist in reality, which it, is interesting. Yeah. So the, the, the only person that's making this awkward is you, basically, a lot of people. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. You're making it awkward in your own hypothetical scenario that you create in yeah. your mind. <laughs> um, so talk about the, the, the taxi cab drivers. Why was that sort of, people had sort of mixed reactions on what it would be like or what it wouldn't, wouldn't be like? Yeah. So the taxi cabs were really interesting because um, it's less of a wicked environment. So I, I mentioned this idea of um, Robert Hogarth's term, this coin to this term call wicked environment in which people never learn because the environment is set up such that the norms are never to begin to have the experience and so you never learn what the experience will be like but um cabs are nice because it's sort of a private environment um so you're not so worried about disturbing other people and also you have to talk to your driver at least a little bit in order to sort of give them the directions of where to go um and so there's sort of an easy icebreaker conversation starter um, in that sense. And so actually, um, when we went to the Midway International Airport in Chicago and surveyed travelers who were catching cabs home, um, about half of them said that they regularly did talk to their cab drivers, um, which makes sense. The environment is sort of set up as such that it would be sort of easier to have that conversation if you wanted to. Um, and so half of these people had experience with what that is like. And then the other half did not have any experience. They said that they have never talked to cab drivers and they wouldn't want to do that. And um, and these people make opposite predictions about what the experience will be like. And the people that have talked say it'll be a great experience. Um, the people that have never talked say they think it'll be a terrible experience, which, you know, once again, makes perfect sense. That's probably why they talk and don't talk. Um, but what's really interesting is when we then randomly assign people into conditions and in one of the conditions ask them to have a conversation. And these are both people who normally talk and also people who normally don't talk. Even the people that normally don't talk, we said, can, can you, for the purposes of this study, have a conversation with your cab driver today? And they agreed and we gave them K 
candy <laughs> to <laughs> incentivize them. <laughs> and they agreed to do it. And then when they did it, and they told us how it was, um, turns out they were wrong. It was pleasant for them. In fact, it was actually even a little bit more pleasant for them than it was for the people who normally talk and have a conversation. But it was at, yeah, at least as pleasant of an experience. Interesting. Um, yeah. For the, and so uh, basically the people who never talk to their drivers, they are wrong about what that experience will be like. So they think it'll be bad. They're wrong about that. When they talk, they find out that it is actually pleasant on average. So they look just like the people on the trains and the buses who never talk and they think it'll be a bad experience. And then um, there's also this sort of other half of the sample that they do normally talk. They know what that'll be like and they're correct. And so those are the people who have the experience and they, uh, and so they are able to sort of change their environments and have these conversations that are giving them some pleasure, some happiness on a more regular basis because they sort of figured out what that experience would really be like. Great. So like the takeaway is like talk to strangers or may at least try to talk to strangers because it'll be a lot more pleasant than you think it's going to be. Yeah. I mean, I'd say that, um, so, you know, Nick and I have looked at these environments that are generally tend to be fairly negative. So commuting experiences are, are one of the worst experiences that people have. Um, so there's a seminal study by Daniel Kahneman in which they sample, they did experience sampling. So they had a, a big sample of women who did all these different things during their day in Texas, and they every they would give them buzzers, and they'd buzz them every couple hours and say, what are you doing right now, and how are you feeling? And so you might be working, and you feel kind of generally happy. You might be sleeping, and you were just woken up. You might be reading, whatever. Or you might be commuting is one of the things that all these women were commuting a lot. And so out of all the different activities that they did during the day, their commuting was the worst. <laughs> so if you buzz someone during their commute and say, how are you feeling? People say they're really unhappy. <laughs> it's not It's not a good time for them. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents, to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. 
ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Um, generally during the day. And so, I mean, you can imagine particularly in these, it's sort of the perfect environment where you're not that happy to begin with. There's not much to do. Um, that's a really good time that you might want to strike up a conversation with someone. Okay. Um, Cause that, you know, that's generally a positive thing to have a conversation with someone and even with a stranger and in particular, you know, in contrast to sort of the relatively negative experience of uh, being on your commute by yourself, that can make that, that sort of better. And we also, um, we're just now starting to look at what would happen if you continually did this. So all we know now is that it provides sort of a, a brief boost in mood um, and happiness um, that could have downstream consequences throughout the day, but we don't really know exactly what those would be. But, you know, it might be that if you, did it every single day that might lead to more long-term consequences so i can't i can only speculate on those right now but um absolutely that would be sort of my recommendation okay to try to have some more conversations with strangers particularly in these cases when you don't have much else to do (laughs) yeah like one for like i try to do and i think you talk about this in the book is like talking to like the checkout person at the grocery store Instead of just mm-hmm. sitting there, like watching them scan the thing, like actually like talk to them, like, how's your day? What are you doing this week? I, I did that last night with the, the guy who was checking me out at the grocery store. We had a, oh, a nice. we had a pleasant conversation, you know? So <laughs> and I, yeah, felt, I felt a, a little better another, afterwards. Oh, great. Yeah. There was another study that came out where they, um, they had people talking to the Starbucks baristas, um, while they were making their coffee. And so, so that's another time you're just standing around waiting you might as well strike up a little conversation. And yeah, people felt happier afterwards. I think it also reflected more positively on the brand. It actually <laughs> felt more positively towards Starbucks as a whole, which is, you know, great oh, idea yeah. for companies to be trying to engage people sort of to build their brand image as well. Interesting. Okay. Um, so one of the, okay, the first way we kind of mistake reading the minds of others is, um, we just talked about like the dehumanization, like thinking they don't have a mind or they have less free will or they're not a social agent. Um, another one that I thought was another mistake we make, which I thought was interesting is whenever we, uh, it's not dehumanization. It's whenever we uh, give something a mind that actually doesn't have a mind, right? Mm -hmm. We we treat it. Can you um, give some examples of this mistake? Yeah. So, um, what we call it anthropomorphism. So, um, attributing mind, to some non-human agent. So um, there are actually products that are designed now to be to seem sort of lifelike. I mean, you can even think of children with stuffed animal, giving their stuffed animal like a name. So this isn't just a stuffed bear. This is Mr. Bear. Um, they'll talk to it. And also we found that sort of cute, um, cute things tend to be anthropomorphized more for reasons I can talk about later. Um, but here's a, a great product that came out on the market recently from a, a Chicago booth alum, actually. It's called Clocky. Mm, yeah. And this is, have you heard of this? This yeah. is an alarm clock that um, when it goes off in the morning, not only does it buzz, it um, rolls around 
um, on your bedroom floor in random directions. And so you have to actually get up and catch it in order to wake up. And, um, what was, and so, you know, it's a good idea in terms of making someone, forcing someone to wake up, absolutely. But they, you know, as a stroke of marketing genius, not only did they sort of make it so that this is just an alarm clock that moves around, they gave it like a whole personality. So they call it clocky. They say, they put eyes on it and stuff. It looks like, you know, it looks like it's alive. It moves in random directions. And they say that in, in all of their descriptions on the website, they refer to it as a he, like he does this, he does that. And this is what he'll do when you catch him. Um, and so people get like really attached to, and they've built up like quite a following. So it's not just, you know, an alarm clock that moves around. This is clocky. This is like my alarm clock. <laughs> and people you know, trivia mind to it and get attached. And um, there are lots of interesting consequences from this. So um, one thing that um, Nick Epley has recently uh, done some research on with Adam Waits, who's a, a great professor at Kellogg, and he's also, Adam Waits is the one who um, came up with these names of dehumanization by commission, dehumanization by omission, along with Nick and I. And um, Joy Hefner, they've done research lately on um, driverless cars. So um, General Motors is one company. There could be other ones as well. They're trying to develop these driverless cars. And how do we get people to feel comfortable about that? Because, that? Um, you know, you can imagine that's going to be a strange experience for people the first time. How do we get people to trust their cars? Um, and can anthropomorphizing cars change people's attitudes towards these driverless cars? Interesting. Um, well, the short answer is uh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and I, right. I thought it was interesting the the research that talked about. Um, I think it was in a car factory where, when the machine wasn't working correctly, like all of a sudden it it got a personality. Like the people talked about it, like oh, he's acting up today, and like it's like it, it, like it, it like it had a mind yeah. of it, but nothing. It didn't have a mind. Like it wasn't like willfully trying to be. Um, you know, not work, right. And make things unpleasant for people. It was just, it wasn't working, but people treated it like it was exerting some sort of will and trying to purposely upset them. Yeah. So, um, Nick and, um, Adam have suggested that there are primarily two reasons why we anthropomorphize things. And one is I'm wanting to connect with them. So people who are lonely actually tend to anthropomorphize more. That's also the idea that, uh, why we anthropomorphize cute things more. And then the other one is sort of what you're referring to, which is trying to understand our environment. Um, so suddenly needing to make sense of something. And so I feel that we've all had this experience where like our computer breaks and we're like, what are you thinking? What's going on? Like, what, what do you want from me? And you start sort of talking to your computer when it breaks <laughs> as if it's alive um, and getting really frustrated and angry at your computer, even though that will not help matters at all. Um, whereas sort of the rest of the time when everything's working as normal, it's just the machine. Yeah. And so, um, there's been many sort of examples of this when something breaks down, that's when you start to wonder what's going on with it. Also, um, like I remember I said clocky moves in sort of random directions and also at random speeds. Um, if something is moving randomly as opposed to just moving, um, constantly, uh, in one direction, then we're more likely to think it has a mind. Yeah, even though we it does. We see patterns in the randomness. Yeah, yeah. even though it does. Right. Because we like to. Even uh, though it's programmed to move randomly. Yeah, because we like to create narratives, right, in our mind. Like that's we're narr- we're storytelling machines as well as mind reading machines. Like, if something's happening randomly, there's got to be a reason for it, even though there's not. Right, right. We yeah. see patterns from it. And I guess, I mean, like that sort of knowing that we do that um, can, I guess, reduce amount of like a lot of stress in your life. You know, when something goes wrong, instead of getting angry about it and like mm-hmm. anthropomorphize, you know, whatever that word is, I can't say it. Um, anthropomorphize. Yeah, anthropomorphize. <laughs> uh, just, you know, uh-huh. like, okay, it's just, ha- it's not trying to like purposely make me upset. Uh, it's just something that's happening and just sort of be stoic about it. Um, yeah, I think that could, that might be a strategy that will work in some cases. I, I sort of, so I hesitate to call anthropomorphism a mistake in some okay. cases. I mean, absolutely, you're attributing mind something that has no mind. So in that sense, that, that is incorrect. Mm-hmm. But um, unless people actually, you know, literally believe that something has a mind, which, um, well, some research shows that that may be the case. But in, in fact, you know, it can lead to positive outcomes for people. It can be adaptive to think of something as being mindful. And so in the case where 
you know, driving the driverless cars. Mm-hmm. Um, when people trust their cars more, so the way that they did this, um, so they gave cars a name, they gave it a voice, um, things like that. Um, that makes people anthropomorphize their cars more. They trust the cars more, and they're more willing to to be interested in buying a driverless car, be willing to um, sit in a driverless car, be, and they trust the car more. And when it when there's an accident, um, they're less likely to blame the car. And so those kind of, I mean, that can actually be beneficial for people, sure. right? So, yeah, I mean, to the extent that driverless cars would be safer, mm-hmm. um, and humans who are, some humans are terrible drivers. <laughs> so is that why um, Google made their, like, they, be mm-hmm. like Google released, like, a, their concept of what their driverless car looked like? It was like this, like, cute little animal-looking thing. Is that, mm-hmm. is that kind of what they make a not threat name. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, um, some cars, if you look at the grill, so if you face them head on and look at them, it kind of looks like they're smiling. Mm-hmm. And so people actually have a more pleasant association with those cars, um, which is so, so car manufacturers are actually doing this purposefully to sort of, because they recognize that people have this association. Yeah. And like the, I know um, a lot of the police cars use the charger, which is like a really mm-hmm. mean looking, like it looks like it's angry uh, mm-hmm. and they must be doing that purposely. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> well, it's, it's it's really funny that 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 could have an effect on you like that. You mentioned earlier some of the research you've done on Israeli-Palestinian relationships. Um, huh? this, I thought it was a really fascinating topic that was brought up in the book. Was that oftentimes when we're we're told like the common bit of advice is that if we want to you know be better mind readers, we need to try to get mm-hmm. into the shoes of the other person. Right, walk a mile in their shoes, and you'll you'll understand where they're coming from. Sounds really good in theory. Yeah, right? but it, some, it can backfire. And uh, the uh-huh. with the case with the Palestinian-Israeli relationship, that's where it can really backfire. Can you explain like why getting in the other person's shoes uh, might not be a good idea sometimes? Yeah, um, Nick Apley and uh, a professor here at Booth, Eugene Caruso, and uh, Max Brazeman, who's at Harvard, they coined a term called reactive egoism, which helps to describe this. And essentially, it's, in cases in which you're really distant from the other person, you simply have a totally different set of life experiences, or even when you sort of are construing the person as being on the other side of an issue from you, so they've done this with negotiations, so you're negotiating against someone, but also you can really vividly imagine it with the case like Palestinians and Israelis, where they just have a totally different set of life experiences, you, you know, you know nothing about them. Um, we, we researched teenagers and a lot of them have had no experiences with the other side except through like checkpoints and that kind of thing. Um, trying to perspective take and trying to sort of imagine what it would be like to walk in their shoes is so foreign and so difficult that it can actually backfire. So you can imagine if you have no clue what it would be like to walk in someone's shoes, just simply saying, why do you try harder? <laughs> Isn't going to work. <laughs> um, and so, and so what you do instead, when someone asks you to really try to imagine what that perspective would be like, is you just draw upon sort of a stereotype that you have of that side, and which tend to be negative stereotypes, yeah. um, and you sort of build a story that could be sort of a negative story, and you imagine all these terrible things potentially that are, are not really what it would be like to take the perspective of the other person. It's a constructed narrative that you're making based on basically no information about that person based just on sort of your stereotypes. And so then it could actually backfire. Um, so in the, in the negotiation experiments, um, when you, when they ask people to perspective take the um, opposing party, what their first move would be and sort of how they would approach the negotiation, then it actually turned out that once people thought about that for a while, they became more aggressive. <laughs> so they made more aggressive first offer, offers. And you can imagine that they're, when they're perspective taking, they're thinking, oh no, what are all the terrible things that this person could do in the negotiation? Like, what are all the hard lines that they could take? And, and so then they sort of are reacting to that imagined story, which may or may not be true. And then they're becoming even more aggressive. Interesting. Um, that it, I, so that's when perspective taking can really backfire. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you, what's the alternative to that? I mean, if, instead of in the case of like the Israeli-Palestinian relationships, right? Or in the negotiation mm-hmm. experiment or ex- uh, situation, like instead of perspective taking, like what should you do instead if you really want to understand where the person's coming from or try to? 
Yep. So what um, what Nick refers to this as is uh, perspective getting. So rather than attempting to imagine the other perspective of someone who you have no clue about, you actually would want to meet with them or talk with them, use language, and, and actually try to get their perspective. So okay. actually asking them what it is. <laughs> oh, of course, ask feeling. them. So there's all of this. Exactly. It, it sounds obvious when you say it, um, but yet, you know, people don't often think to reach out to the other side or they don't have the opportunity to do so. So um, the research that I'm doing with Israelis and Palestinians um, we look at teenagers who are brought to a summer camp in the United States. It's um, a program called Seeds of Peace. It's one of the largest Middle East coexistence programs. And um, and they uh, basically bring the groups into contact for three weeks in this summer camp. And so the groups have a chance to finally meet the other side, to face on the other side, interact with even form friendships, which is part of the reason why it occurs in the U.S. as opposed to being... Uh, which is a relatively neutral territory, as opposed to being in the Middle East. Um, they can even they can even form friendships with each other, and um, and then this gives them like a totally new perspective on what these people are going through. Um, and sort of by the end of just a three week camp experience, their attitudes have totally changed towards the other side. And furthermore, we um, follow up with them like nine months to a year after they go back to their home countries. And uh, a lot of people maintain that to change. There's certainly regression, um, but a lot of, of the uh, campers maintain that attitude change. And in particular, the ones who are able to make just at least one strong connection with the other side, the one close friendship or relationship with the other side who are able to make that, and especially the ones who can maintain that relationship, those are the ones who show the um, prolonged, maintained attitude change. And they have the most positive attitudes. Very interesting. Um, so yeah, you mentioned, so just take oh, one, sort of one yeah. deep relationship is what we find. Okay. So you mentioned uh, stereotyping is something that gets in the way of mind reading because you usually stereotype uh, often in the most negative light uh, in someone. So it's hard to kind of relate to something that's completely foreign from you. And a really interesting section in the book I found was how – our gender stereotypes can get in the way of men and women communicating. So, I mean, is it, uh, are we as psychologically different as books like, you know, men are from Mars and women are from Venus say we are, or are we actually more similar than we think we are? (laughs) Um, so no, I do not think we are quite as different as those books portray. And uh, and also just to make this clear, I don't think all, you know all stereotypes are negative. In fact, mm-hmm. um, sort of stereotyping refers to sort of a general impression formation of groups that we don't necessarily know that much about, and there can be positive stereotypes as well. Right? Okay, yeah. Um, so women are caring, so that could be a positive stereotype that people might have. Um, but uh, stereotypes are really interesting, and, and Nick portrays this really, really well in his book because. Um, there's a reason why we form stereotypes in the first place. They're cognitively very efficient, um, and there is some degree of accuracy in most stereotypes. Hmm. Um, the problem is that you know they're not entirely accurate, and of course, with any sort of group of people, a single sort of portrait of the, that group will not capture every single individual within that group. Um, so they can backfire in interesting instances, and that can be very negative, um, and that can lead to lots of negative consequences. But particularly with males and females, there are right, there are many, many stereotypes about males versus females and all these differences, and, and a lot of research sort of highlights what the differences are, but in fact, if you um, look through the data really carefully, um, there are many similarities as well. And in fact, the differences are not that large, and some of them, many of them are actually due to just social norms. And so um, once you sort of eliminate or change some of the norms that people think they're supposed to behave, um, because having a stereotype can affect how you behave, because you think you're supposed to behave in a certain way. Um, once you make it okay for people to behave differently, sometimes those, a lot of those, uh, those differences actually disappear entirely. So, I mean, so for one example, I guess, is um, one of the big sex differences people talk about is mate preferences. Mm-hmm. Um, so the stereotype is that, um, females, uh, prefer a mate that has resources and more so than males who would 
more so prefer a mate that has is physically attractive. And so um, this is a, a this is true um, across many cultures. Um, but sort of what that research completely overlooked is that, yeah, on the margin, those preferences are slightly reversed. But in fact, everyone prefers a mate that's uh, kind and intelligent and, you know, competent. So there are lots of other preferences that people have that both sexes share. Yeah. And they are completely identical preferences, right? And so, you know, I guess on the margin, sort of like t- 10 steps down, yeah, a female might prefer resources more than a male. But, you know, in fact, if you look at some of the top three, everyone wants like a kind and intelligent mate. <laughs> and so yeah. there's a, a huge, like there's a lot of similarity there. And there's a little bit of difference, but there's a lot of similarity. And so it gets really, um, I think the the coverage of that research tends to focus more on the differences and the similarities. Well, it's because, I mean, we're, we like to find differences. Like that's one of the things, you know, when things are the same or when things mm-hmm. are going well, like we ignore that, but like when things are different mm-hmm. like that, we like focus in on that. And I guess that's a perfect example of, we focus on these differences that, yeah, they're, they're there, but they're not as important as a lot of the things we have in common with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, it's, and people do this all the time. They build sort of profiles of others, like, within cultures, within races, within genders. And so they focus on what the differences are, but in fact, the similarities might outweigh the differences. All right. Well, speaking of men and women, and I, we're going to get into some stereotypes here, but I mean, are, this isn't a common thing that women are, you know, stereotypically they're more intuitive or they can read the, you know, they're more socially adept than men are. Is there anything to that or is, are we about the same or if there is a difference, it's marginal? Um, yeah, there actually has been some research on that, and um, it does seem like there's a very small but significant effect that women do tend to be um, a little bit better in um, reading minds in certain ways. The thing, the, but um, I think the reason why that is is because of um, motivation. So as soon as you motivate men to focus on other people, and then they are just as good as women. Um, it's simply that sort of, and this could be because of norms, because women think they're supposed to be more, you know, empathetic or more caring or more focused on others. Um, so maybe because of some of those norms, women might pay a little more attention and be a little bit better on average. But as soon as you, you know, as soon as you motivate men to care and notice others, then they would be just as good. So that's a difference that, yes, it does show up on average, but I think it's really driven by people's motivations as opposed to their actual ability. Interesting. So I wouldn't say like women are better than men. I would just say that they, for lots of possible reasons, they seem to be a little bit more motivated to notice other people. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, we, we don't have much time hmm. left, but I wanted to get to this. I thought this is the, one of the more fascinating parts about how we're poor at reading our own minds sometimes. Hmm. Like we think we're self-aware, but we're not. What prevents us from understanding ourselves, and why do we commit those same sort of mind-reading mistakes that we do with others with our own mind? Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. So people think that they have um, strong powers of introspection. So um, I, you know, I obviously, because I have, you know, some access into my mind, I think that, you know, I can figure out every single aspect of what I'm thinking and feeling and I know exactly why that's occurring. And But in fact, um, people tend to be sort of outcome oriented. So if I ask you right now what, what mood you're in and you said you're happy or something, um, you know, you know what mood you're in. You have, you have access to that information, um, or at least you can construct that very quickly in the moment that I ask it. Um, but then if I asked you why, um, you sort of have to try to piece that together. Like you'd have to sort of go back and make some guesses. Like, why is it that I'm feeling happy? Is it because I'm having this conversation or is that because of something that happened earlier in the day? Or is it, there's lots of like possible reasons. And, um, in fact, you know, your brain has been sort of doing all this work without your knowledge and sort of coming up with a mood, sort of online mood in that moment, but you don't really know necessarily how it got there. So you sort of, you're aware of like what you arrive at, but you don't necessarily know exactly all the different processes that happen to get you there. Mm. And so, um, one sort of way that this has been shown in the research is through creative problem solving. So um, researchers gave people um, these 
uh, puzzles to figure out. Um, and so like the remote associates test where you have these three words and you have to figure out the four words that links them all together. Um, so blank and lines and something else. And the answer is paper. You know, so there's one word that sort of links the other words together. And this is kind of hard for people and they have to think about it a little bit. And sometimes people get stumped when it's really, really hard. And um, what, what the researchers did is they gave people like a hint. They did something where they changed their environment. Like they put a stack of papers on the desk or something and that, and then suddenly people were sort of able to figure out because what the answer was because of that hint that they were subtly given in their environment. And then they asked the participants, how did you come up with the answer? And so people sort of were aware that they had this moment of epiphany, like, oh, but they couldn't, they knew that they had it, but they couldn't name the cue in the environment that triggered it necessarily. They weren't clear that there was some cue in the environment that was triggering it. People couldn't figure out what that cue was because it sort of happened outside of their awareness. But they could make up a story, so they could come up with some story like, "Oh, I had this memory suddenly at this time when I was writing, and then it came to me it was paper." Um, But in fact, it was the cue, the subtle cue, but they couldn't name that cue. And so, people, when they're introspecting, a lot of times what they're doing is they're just they're doing it from sort of almost a third person perspective. They're kind of just going back through their memories or through the day, like as an observer and just trying to figure out the same way anyone else would figure out what it is that made them happy or that made them come up with the right answer. But in fact, um, it might not have necessarily been that. It's just that people don't have that much insight into the actual processes of their brain. So sometimes we're strangers to our, our own selves. Yeah, exactly. All right. mm-hmm. And oftentimes we can't, we can't predict sort of how we might behave in different situations very well. Yeah. Um, that, that the, exper- the experiment that one guy, Lapierre, Lapierre yeah. did with yep. the, about uh, racism. Can you talk about that? It, that was like one of the most fascinating things I've, I read in the book. Yeah. So this is a, a really, really interesting experiment by a Stanford sociologist. And um, essentially he went to a, a neighborhood, I think in California, where they um, had sort of a policy at the time, this was a long time ago, um, not to serve groups from certain minorities. So I think he went to a bunch of different hotels and was asking if um, Asian people like Chinese um, businessmen could stay in the hotel. And the policy was that, you know, they were not allowed to do that. Um, it was a very sort of a racist neighborhood environment. And so um, all the uh, hotel keepers would say, if they were explicitly asked, they'd say, well, you know, no, that's not our policy. Um, but then, so they would say that, but then if they were actually approached by um, someone with a Chinese businessman um, and the person was right there in front of them and they asked for a room, then they would say yes. <laughs> so they totally would change, so they would predict that they would say no, and um, that stems from their knowledge of what the norms are and what they were supposed to say. But then in reality, when sort of faced with the person, the human, standing right in front of them, pretty much no one would say no. Um, and that's because, and part of the reason for that is because um, it's, it's hard to know how you're going to act when someone is right in front of your face and what that experience is like. It's hard to sort of create that experience in your mind. Um, and, there's a, and there's a second really strong norm when someone's asking you for something is not to be rude, especially as someone like in the service business, mm-hmm. in the um, hospitality business. It's going to be hard, really, really hard to turn someone down who's right in front of you. And so, you know, on the phone, you can say, uh, this is not our policy. We would not do that. But when faced with someone right in front of you who's, you know, a human just like you, it's hard to say no to that. So people, it turned out that most of the um, hotel men would not say, they'd say yes. It's interesting. And they didn't know that, you know, they didn't have good access into what that experience would really be like. They mispredict what that is like. Yeah. And I think that's this sort of, that's sort of the cause of a lot of the, uh, you know, the Monday morning quarterbacking that you see like in sports or like in politics or in business. It's like, oh, well, if I was in that situation as so-and-so politician or business person, like I would have done this. And it's like, well, you don't really know mm-hmm. if, you're, if that's what you would have done. Um, you think you exactly, do. You think you exactly. would, but you wouldn't. So, so I right, guess, right. You can say anything you want, yeah. but when you're actually in that moment, in that experience, unless you're constructing every single aspect of that experience, it's hard for you to really know how you would act. It's interesting. <laughs> you might act differently. So yeah, I, mean, I guess right. this whole idea is it just have a little bit more humility um, 
a, I guess, yeah, like it's like, it's like sort of Socrates, like know that you don't know, um, all the time mm -hmm. can do a lot of wonders mm -hmm. for you. Well, Juliana, I wish we could talk totally. some more because there's just so much, uh, fascinating research in this book. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for uh, talking with me. Our guest today was Juliana Schroeder. She is a PhD candidate at the University of Chicago School of Business, where she's specializing in social cognition, judgment, and decision-making. And she's a research assistant for Nicholas Epley, who wrote a book called MindWise. Go pick it up. It's just a really fascinating book. It's one of those books you'll just read it and you'll just take away a whole bunch of cool insights from it that you can actually apply into your everyday life and see an immediate benefit. So again, it's MindWise. You can find that on Amazon.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And also, did you guys know we have a store? We do. It's store.artofmanliness.com. We just released some new t-shirts that were designed by the guys at Tank Farm. We got a really cool coffee mug. Uh, it's pretty dang manly. It's hefty. You can bludgeon someone with it. We got... Uh, letterpress stationery. We're always adding new stuff there. So go check it out, store.artofmanliness.com, and your purchases will help the support of the podcast. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.